what are your plans for summer vacation? Hopefully, part of it will be listening to us while on the beach. This is Adashina Koiki once again, and you're listening to the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. This is episode number 19. We're so close to reaching that nice round number of 20 episodes, but you have a whole lot of fun with episode number 19. We've been away for a couple of months in terms of doing podcasts. We've been covering a whole lot of sporting events in the National Hockey League during the playoffs, as well as Major League Soccer, as well as the United States Women's National Team, who are about to play in the semifinal round against Germany. So log on to a lot of sports talk.com for our coverage of all of those different sporting events, and hopefully you got a chance to look at all of the different interviews that we got to do with a lot of members of the United States Women's National Team. Just a whole lot of fun talking with those ladies, and we hope that they do their best in the semifinal round against the number one ranked team in the world in Germany. But right now, it's all about this podcast, and we have a couple of very good guests for you. One of our guests is Jennifer Hampson. Remember her just a few months ago when she was leading BYU to the national championship game in volleyball, and then before that, leading the women's basketball team at BYU to the Sweet 16? Well, now she is a member of the Los Angeles Sparks. She was drafted by the LA Sparks in 2014, but then put off her professional basketball career for a year to play volleyball at BYU one last time. We got to cover her when BYU was in Oklahoma City for the Women's Volleyball Final Four, and we got a chance to catch up with Jennifer Hampson right before the Los Angeles Sparks played a basketball game against the New York Liberty. So one of our guests in our second interview is with Jennifer Hampson. But our first interview today is an emotional interview and one that we had the honor and privilege to conduct, especially given uh, the recent happenings in our country and specifically in South Carolina in the past couple of weeks with the uh, Charleston shooting that claimed the lives of nine African-Americans. A.D. Carson is a graduate student at Clemson University, and last year he wrote a poem called See the Stripes, a really close examination at the history of Clemson University, how it was built, as well as the men who are posthumously honored across campus at Clemson University and their ties to racism and segregation and reconciling that with the African-American population at Clemson University and the specifically the African-American student-athlete population at Clemson University. So we have a very, very emotional interview coming up in the next few seconds with A.D. Carson, a graduate student at Clemson University who wrote that poem right before the 2014 season uh, commenced at Clemson University, and we had a chance to catch up with him. It was on the same day that President Obama flew to Charleston, South Carolina, and delivered the eulogy for Reverend and Pastor Clemente Pinckney and Senator Clemente Pinckney, one of the nine uh, who were murdered in that racist terror attack. Uh, So we talk with A.D. Carson, a poet, 
a musician, a graduate student at Clemson University, talking about that poem and talking about his emotions, uh, given everything that has happened in America in the past couple of weeks. He did actually go down to Charleston as well. So I got to ask him about the mood and about some of the conversations he had with the people who live in Charleston. So that interview is coming up in the next few seconds. A.D. Carson first, followed by Jennifer Hampson, and we will see you at the very end of the show. One of the many after effects of the Charleston, South Carolina church shooting that killed nine African Americans is the thorough and continued reexamination of American history through the lens of race relations, specifically in the American South. Last August, before the start of the 2014 college football season, a poem and video called See the Stripes, which touched on the history of the founding of Clemson University in South Carolina and the men who are honored throughout the campus, went viral on the Internet. It took a candid look at the positions those men took on the issue of race back in the 19th century, the slave labor that was integral to the existence of the university, and the conflict that poses when juxtaposing that with the fervor for Clemson University athletics and the many African Americans who are student athletes at the university and the minority population at Clemson University. Joining us right now on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast is the man who wrote the poem. He is A.D. Carson. He is a poet. He is a musician. He is an educator as well. And he is currently a grad student at Clemson University in rhetorics, communication, and information design. And first of all, A.D., thank you so very much uh, for joining us today how are you doing today uh, i'm great and i uh, i appreciate you having me on i uh, appreciate the opportunity oh no problem not at all uh before we talk about uh the work with your poem and some of the other works uh that you have done in terms of touching on race relations in america and acknowledging it to go forward i do want to go back to uh june 17th which is when the uh charleston uh south carolina church uh shooting happened um it hit close to home to almost every American. I know with your work in terms of acknowledging and learning from the past in terms of race relations in America and the work that you've done in the past, um, it's almost hard to say that it made it even more beyond, beyond comprehension. But your emotions um, last week, knowing all the work that you had done and then seeing uh, what had happened last week in Charleston. Well, I was actually quite heartbroken. And the reason that I was, I had a friend who sent me a message who said, it's amazing. Oh, well, she actually said, I hate to tell you that you were right. And, and I kind of felt that, that, um, that next day on Thursday evening, uh, a professor friend of mine and I, we went down to Charleston because we wanted to be right there. We wanted to talk to people who were there. And one of the things that was ever present in my mind was just a block away towering, you know, like 80 feet above us is a statue of John C. Calhoun, sort of overlooking Charleston. And again, there is the presence of the past that's with us. So we have this atrocious act, this horrific, uh, tragic event that everyone in the country is affected by and everybody's dealing with. And then what we have right there in that present moment is the past looking over us. And so we have antiquated thoughts that lead to actions in the present that, um, come from the past and so it's almost like if you could look at the world with uh, layers on it like you could peel the layers back or you could put the layers on 
like the past is just sitting right there on top with us. And so um, my thoughts were really that it's a terrible, terrible thing that we come to this when we know all the information we need to know in order to at least investigate and acknowledge some of those things in the past that we might need to be a little bit better about talking about so that they don't come and meet us in the present with something as atrocious as what happened there in, in Charleston. How long were you in Charleston and what did you get uh, from some of the uh, people that you may have talked to that are natives of Charleston, South Carolina? So how long were you there? I was there from Thursday until uh, very early Sunday. And we, when we got there, we met, there were three men standing uh, directly there in front of, of the church as we came up, and we, we talked to them for five hours. Mm-hmm. And the conversation spanned many different topics, but mostly it was about history, and it was about history and how Charleston is different from some of the other places where tragedies occur and how the the men who were there that evening felt about moving forward as a united Charleston or as black men in Charleston having to contend with this, but also the many sort of microaggressions that they may see on a day-to-day basis. And so it was really eye-opening because uh, I don't know, I mean, there's there's no substitute for talking to people who, have, uh, who were born and grew up in a place as opposed to, say, maybe reading books about a place and getting sort of the historical tensions that, that go on and then listen to, listening to someone's lived experience. And so it was good to be able to speak to people who live there and then also share that moment, you know, to be able to sort of uh, commune during a time of grief and sort of share that, um, share that space and um, even share that silence, you know, the comfort that we have with each other's silence um, and then sometimes filling those silences with, uh, with words of comfort or, you know, stories that we could tell back and forth. Uh, you mentioned at the very beginning of that answer about, I guess, some of the differences or a difference between uh, what occurred in Charleston and what occurred in other cities where uh, race-motivated crimes uh, occurred. Uh, what, I guess, specifically may have been a difference or those differences, at least from what you got from the people that you talked to for so long? Well, I know that the the men there, they said that they were fairly certain that there would not be any kind of uh, any kind of rioting. There were some demonstrations, you know, there was a march, uh, and I was present for that. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm believing that there were other marches as well that, that I wasn't um, a part of. But as far as the, the kinds of things, you know, with uh, maybe looting and, and things of that nature, they, they said that they felt that it wouldn't happen in Charleston. And um, I don't really like to make the comparison of one place to another because I think that they're they're separate events. And so, yeah, I wouldn't want to compare them side by side so much as to look at them as being sort of points on a timeline. And I think that in in a very real sense, we learn from what may have previously happened. So um, I think that the response here may be a response to some of those other events. So comparing them would be kind of unfair. Uh, Once again, we are joined by A.D. Carson, graduate student at Clemson University and the author of the poem, See the Stripes. And I do want to ask you, uh, you are a grad student at Clemson University. And before we get to your works that you have done, um, how did you end up at Clemson University? Well, honestly, the program that Clemson has in rhetorics, communication and information design it's a very unique program, and, uh, well, there's not another one like it in the country. So 
what really attracted me to Clemson was the program that I'd been um, accepted into. And so I, uh, Clemson, South Carolina, as a place, was probably second or third or maybe fourth on the list of priorities. My priority was getting into a program that was going to allow me to do the kind of work that I felt was important and necessary in the way that I wanted to do that work. And this program allowed me to do that. So I ended up here basically because of the program. And then when I got here, it was uh, there were these monuments and things that I saw, and I started asking questions. And I had a lot of one-on-one conversations and realized that those one-on-one conversations were revelatory to both myself and the individuals I was talking to because I'm asking them if they know about these places or know about the names of the people that they're named for. And then I just thought, you know, it may be better to try to create something that presents all of this information so that I don't have to have this conversation with everyone I meet or to have that conversation in a form that's much bigger. So how about the Internet? I was about to branch off of that and ask you, at the very beginning of your poem, uh, you mentioned that there's very little acknowledgement to the men and women who were under slave labor that built uh the university is there any acknowledgement or is this something that uh if you're at clemson university you have to either go into a classroom or go on the internet to find out you'd either have to go into a classroom or you'd have to go and take the tour of the um fort hill plantation house where when i went there the first time they had a pamphlet that said uh welcome to fort hill and then there was a separate pamphlet that said the African-American experience at Fort Hill. So you'd almost have to ask specifically to know what African-Americans endured as um, labor here at, um, or as laborers here as, at Clemson uh, or before Clemson was Clemson University. So it was really information that you would have to seek out. But there are no monuments whatsoever to any of the African-Americans uh, who were slaves, sharecroppers, or convict laborers at Clemson. None whatsoever on campus. So that, along with, I guess, the lack of information uh, that you were getting from people that worked at the university or worked in terms of touring uh, those different uh, monuments and houses, that was the initial genesis of beginning to write your poem, is it not? Yes. And then, well, the names that were on buildings that were prominently featured, uh, particularly uh, Strom Thurmond, um, who we know is famously um, segregationist uh, senator who, um, you know, is known for the, the, you know, really long filibuster and all of those things. And, and also for uh, that we found out later on in life that he had a, a, a daughter by uh, an African-American woman who lived in his family's house. Um, and then there was uh, John C. Calhoun, who was also a uh, segregationist and, um, and, said that slavery was a positive good as opposed to a necessary evil. And then the worst of all, our campus's main building, the most prominent building on campus is named for Benjamin Tillman, who uh, not only was a white supremacist and uh, a terrorist and a murderer, uh, participated in the Hamburg Massacre. Um, You know, that building is named to honor him. And I thought, well, that's kind of, it's kind of scary when you think who we honor and how we honor them. And then we look at the number of African-American students on campus, and it's below 7%. And I don't know if we can wonder why that number is so low if we name buildings after segregationists and uh, slave owners and, and white supremacists. 
Uh, now you are at a university and in a program that's so unique and you were able to get into the program and be at Clemson and now you have this uh, staring you right in the face every single day. How high uh, was the conflict, the internal conflict uh, that you experienced or the internal conflict that you have at this moment right now uh, given that juxtaposition? Well, you know, I think that one of the things that, that, that I thought about with my own interaction was, I mean, at first there was a conflict that, you know, I'm really, like, is it worth it to be here in order to receive the, the education that I'm getting in turn? I thought, well, that's one way to look at it, but I could also look at it as a way to use the work that I'm going to do to affect positive change. So if we can make people aware of these things and, and we can change then I can be extremely proud of doing the work here as opposed to anywhere else because being here at Clemson provides me the unique opportunity to be able to make the kinds of changes that I believe need to be made um, in places like Clemson, not just Clemson, but in other places. So other schools could follow suit if we're able to affect that positive change here. And so where I had conflict initially or where I felt that inner turmoil about sort of walking in the shadow of a building that's named for a white supremacist, um, now I feel like, you know, part of my work is to challenge that and to also make the place better so that when I do graduate and when I do talk to my nephews and my nieces, I can say Clemson is a great place to go to because Clemson is a place that, while it may be difficult, you can help to change things. And, you know, then that could be something that has been proven by what has been done here at the place where I am now. And uh, I do want to uh, confirm you mentioned uh, uh, John C. Calhoun um, and Fort Hill. That is the uh, uh, plantation home that, as of right now, the way it's sit situated, it looks over uh, Death Valley, the football field. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So the, the, you know, the hill that the, the students, uh, the football players run down uh, during the 25 most exciting, or the most exciting uh, 25 seconds in college football if you take that hill all the way up to its apex, at the very top is a plantation house, and it's open seven days a week for tours, but that was uh, John Calhoun's plantation house. And so, yes, it overlooks the football field, which ironically is where uh, the labor of uh, primarily African-American men is, um, well, I mean, and I will say exploited um, for the purpose of uh, financial gain for you know, our football program and, you know, our, our school. So, yes. How cognizant, uh, I'm not sure how many uh, athletes you've gotten to talk to while at Clemson University. How cognizant do you think uh, the African-American athletes are, either if they play football at Death Valley or at Little John Coliseum uh, for men's or women's basketball or different um, athletic activities? How cognizant do you think are the athletes uh, of the uh, history of Clemson University and the people it's named after. Um, how, how cognizant do you think they are, or, or do you think they're just more concerned with, um, I guess, getting ready to go the next level professionally um, and or just earning their scholarships? So how cognizant do you think uh, the athletes are? Well, you know, if, if the general student population is any indicator of how uh, how cognizant the athletes may be, then I would say they probably haven't really thought much about it because we as a university, as an institution, we don't give students much reason to even consider why we name things for certain people. What I do know, however, is once we talk to student uh, students, um, and I imagine the student athletes will be no different, 
once we start to talk to them, then they start to see those pills, and then it's a bit jarring. And then there are the re- responses like, okay, so what are we supposed to do next? What do we do about this? And uh, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of um, football players, a lot of basketball players come out to events. And I know that they're extremely busy because, um, as I've said before, um, well, when I, when I say exploitation, I just mean that they, they do work really, really, really hard. And um, our particularly our football coach has said in public that, you know, he doesn't even want to have a conversation about paying athletes because um, there's already too much entitlement as there is. Um, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said something along those lines about too much entitlement. And then you kind of think about that parallel and you say, well, this, this is a man who, who makes millions of dollars coaching football. And he's talking about not even having a conversation about uh, compensating student athletes who make it possible for him to be a millionaire. And, um, and then there becomes an eerie parallel between John C. Calhoun and whoever may be running an athletic program here because it's happening on his former plantation while his um, house is still open. And, you know, again, it's happening on a field, no less. Once again, A.D. So, Carson. Oh, go, go ahead. Sorry. No, yeah, I was just going to say. So I just, I just think that once athletes kind of hear that, when they see that laid out, then it becomes more apparent. And I think that that may cause a bit of discomfort. And so, of course, we wish to have more conversations and more interaction and activity with our student athletes. It just so happens that we don't have as many opportunities because I know that they're extremely busy uh, with doing their schoolwork and then having to be prepared to be out on the field uh, week in and week out. Once again, A.D. Carson, poet, musician, and current grad student at Clemson University, joining us on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. Uh, I'm sure... Uh, the reaction uh, to your work and to many people who are involved in Tiger Stripes and See the Stripes, uh, I'm sure a lot of the reaction was positive. I'm also sure that there was uh, some uh, pushback, blowback uh, from people at the university or and or people uh, uh, chiming in from the Internet. Uh, can you describe, uh, if you can, some of the uh, reactions that were, I guess, positive and or maybe negative as well, and whether that occurred on campus, that uh, possible uh, negative reaction to the work that you uh, uh, wrote? Well, I will start with the positives and say that, um, that there have been many, many, many people who are in support. And so we have See the Stripes T-shirts that, um, that are for purchase on the website, and none of it is for profit, really. All of it goes into being able to have T-shirts because we have solid orange Fridays here where people are encouraged to wear orange. And uh, our belief is that there's no such thing as a solid orange tiger. And so if we want to be good about diversity, then maybe we should see our stripes. So these are black T-shirts that say see the stripes on them. And uh, many, many instructors in the School of Education, and the School of Education is housed in the uh, building that is named for the white supremacist Benjamin Tillman, uh, many of those people have purchased shirts, and they've come out and they've supported the faculty senate, passed a resolution asking the, uh, the the board of trustees to consider changing the name. The graduate student government passed a resolution asking the same. And um, and so there's been much, much support. Many people have shared the videos, and many people are active with our Facebook page. Um, but there has also been some negative. So I've filled with lots of interactions on Twitter that have been negative or, you know, people telling me if I don't like it here, then I should just go home or, you know, go back to where we come from. Um, or, you know, say they're complaining. There was a professor here, um, someone who is, um, uh, I, I can't remember which department that he's in. Maybe it's history um, or one of the social sciences. He says that, uh, that it's fascism and that um, 
you know, that we're just trying to stir up trouble. Uh, some of the, some, there were some um, online publications that said that it was demagoguery. And um, then there were emails, you know, some of them uh, threatening me um, with some pretty foul language and, and those kinds of things. And then there have been students who have sent Facebook messages and things like that. Generally, if it's something that comes from a student, then I just report it to the administration and then they handle it because um, I think our university is really good about making sure that uh, at least interpersonally we don't have any kind of issues that, um, that, that may be problems that have people threatening one another. But as far as some of the others, people who claim to have graduated from Clemson are people who live in the area and they just don't want to have conversations about our history, um, particularly our history as it deals with race relations. Uh, you mentioned the one professor in the social sciences that uh, uh, said that it was fascist. Uh, did did he say it to you personally? Did he say it in email? No, he. Um, there was a, there was a statement that he'd given to another publication, okay. um, and it just said that you know it was fascism. He dismissed it. He also later on in the year um, kind of made news because he'd. Um, was running a, a, an experiment uh, with an exit poll asking some questions that people felt were, were racist. And so he was involved in that as well, which is kind of a, you know, weird juxtaposition that, you know, you tell us that we're engaging in something that is racist, but then you offend the entire community by, um, by asking uh, questions that seem to be racially insensitive or biased. But um, anyhow, I've, I've not had a face-to-face interaction with the man. But I do know that he said that, and it was kind of, well, what I thought it was actually rather immature, but, you know, I guess it's not for me to to make that assessment. Um, But no one from the university contacted me about it, so I imagine that there was no reprimand on his his part, and, um, you know, he continues as he might have. In Columbia, South Carolina, where the University of South Carolina uh, is, the main campus in Columbia, South Carolina, a few days ago, Uh uh, their president uh, called for the Confederate flag to come down uh, in the state house, which is in uh, Columbia, the uh, state capital. Have you heard any statements from uh, the Clemson president, James Clements, about either uh, the issue of uh, the Confederate flag or the issues of acknowledging uh, Clemson University and its past? So has there been any uh, conversation or have you heard anything from the Clemson University president or other high-ranking administrators? Well, what I do know is that um, that at the University of South Carolina in Columbia, their uh, football coach made a statement, you know, some years ago yeah, about it. But their, um, yeah, but their athletic director and their president made statements the morning before uh, Governor Haley made her uh, statement. And after Governor Haley made her statement, then the president of Clemson and the athletic director made statements. Now, I've heard that the football coach has made a statement uh, but I'm not certain. Um, I haven't seen it, so I don't know for sure if uh, Coach Swinney has made a statement. But another thing that you know kind of is strange to me is that also our the chair of our uh, board of trustees made a statement. And when we have the uh, chairperson uh, Wilkins, he made his statement. We have President Clements, and then we have our, our athletic director. They make these statements about what should go on in Columbia. And that's great because this is the political or politically correct thing to do in this moment is to say that we need to take the flag down because we don't want to be judged uh, in the state from outside of the state by this thing that's hanging up at our, you know, our state. But what's hypocritical in that stance is that 
these people who are affiliated with Princeton University make a statement about what's going on in Columbia, but then won't come out against the thing that's sitting in our front yard. It's literally on our front yard, a building that's named for a terrorist and a white supremacist. Why would they make statements about what's going on in Columbia, but then will kind of sit silent about the thing that's going on here, and there are students who attend school here, who pay tuition here, and are concerned about that and have been concerned about that for an entire school year, um, that we know, but probably for much longer than just this past year that we've been talking about it, and they say nothing. And I didn't even come to the, and there was a debate that was hosted by the um, uh, newspaper, and uh, the president, President Clements, wasn't even uh, present for it. So, um, I don't know what their priorities are if they can make statements about what's going on in another town or what's going on at the state house, and then not make statements about being judged here in Clemson, because I can imagine that we would be judged similarly to. Uh, how people uh, for the um, for the Confederate side. If people knew that we were honoring a white supremacist building, that's the building they show on ESPN whenever they're here filming. That's the building that all the students are standing in front of. Uh, why do you think they say nothing, or where do you think their priorities are? Really quickly, why do you think they are tight-lipped? Well, well, I think that it was. I mean, I think that it's a hypocritical stance that they're taking on the flag. I think that it's it's PC. It's because it's the thing to do in the moment, and it's taking advantage of the tragic events that happened in Charleston and riding the political wave. Since it's now in vogue to say take the flag down, everybody's saying take the flag down. It just exposes Clemson in a, a very particular way because we have this building and we've had this conversation over the past year about race in the university, and many of them fell kind of silent on it. So. Now we have to deal with what we have here. And so hopefully they'll be making statements about children soon. Uh, this has been a very uh, enlightening uh, conversation. And as of right now, we are uh, at this moment, uh, we are waiting for uh, the president, Barack Obama, to deliver the eulogy uh, for one of the nine shooting victims, uh, Clemente Pinckney, at this moment as we're having uh, this conversation. Uh, for more on See the Stripes and AD's poem and possibly uh, shop uh, for those uh, See the Stripes t-shirts that AD talked about, you can go to See Stripes cu.org c stripes cu as in clemson university dot o-r-g a.d carson it has been a pleasure uh talking with you today and uh we definitely hope to uh catch up with you down the road again thank you so much for the enlightening conversation well thank you and i you know just one last one last tidbit as yep. we are speaking of uh senator um pinkney yes uh benjamin tillman uh famously also killed a black senator in 1876. And so the parallels go all the way down. If you kind of think about that and kind of uh, understand history is ever-present in the moments that we're dealing with, this is also another reason why I think that we shouldn't be silent on this and that we're showing ourselves as hypocritical whenever we do make statements about what went on in Columbia. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, in uh, Charleston yeah. as uh, Clemson University. And thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. Oh, no, absolutely no problem. It's almost the uh, Santiana quote, those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Uh, and sadly, uh, uh, this is the case. Uh, A.D., thank you so very much uh, for joining us, and we'll catch up with you down the road for sure. All right, thank you. The 2015 WNBA season is well and truly underway, and a lot of rookies and first-year players are looking to make their mark on the premier women's basketball league in America. And joining us right now on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast is someone who is so busy 
to not be a rookie in 2014 that she had to take her school to heights they had never seen um, in basketball and volleyball. She is Jennifer Hampson joining us right now. First of all, Jennifer, thank you so very much for joining us. And how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Uh, a few months ago, you were a really big fish in, I guess, the small pond of Provo, uh, taking uh, volleyball to the national title game, taking the basketball team to the Sweet 16, helping your team take uh, BYU to the uh, Sweet 16. Now you're adjusting to life in the WNBA as a rookie. How has that adjustment been going from big fish in small pond to probably the biggest ponds in women's basketball? Um, it's definitely an adjustment. You know, I think every rookie has to make and... Um, it's hard, but it's fun and exciting at the same time to see how you compare and see what you can do. I guess what's the hardest part of that transition? Um, the hardest part is uh, just getting t- used to a whole new level of basketball. You know, kind of like you said, going from being the best in your league to being, you know, average or you know, trying to be great in the next league. So. At BYU, of course, just a few months ago in December in Oklahoma City in the national championship game, and you were one of the it women in sports uh, because of your prowess in two different sports. Was there a part or was there a moment where you thought, wow, all this attention, all this notoriety is either weird for me, it's creepy, any moment or a couple of moments where you're like, wow, this is overwhelming? (laughs) Um, I never really felt like that. I just kind of enjoyed the moment as it came and just tried to, you know, be my best to be successful and help my team be successful. After being drafted by the L.A. Sparks in 2014, of course, you decided to finish out your volleyball career at BYU. How were those negotiations with the team um, and with yourself and your representatives in terms of making sure you wanted to fulfill that dream um, as well as have management uh, be okay with it and sign off? Yeah, so I told the league before the draft that that was my plan, that I wasn't going to play before. and. Uh, till 2015 and so uh, when the Sparks drafted me they were totally understanding and totally supported me going back to BYU and finishing out my volleyball career. Is there a part of you that just wants to pick up uh, like a volleyball right now and just uh, have a bump or have a spike right now? (laughs) Uh, Definitely a little bit I definitely miss it but you know I'm excited with what I have going forward. Uh, do you think you'll miss it less in the next few years, miss it more? Like, how do you think uh, that evolution will be in terms of uh, reconciling your current career with another career uh, that you have currently left that you were so good at? Um, I don't know if I'll miss it more or less as time goes on. I'll definitely miss it a little bit, but I think maybe a little less as I get more and more involved in basketball. Uh, you were actually just getting taped right now in the locker room right before you came and did this interview. Uh, what, do you, what do you think when you're sitting down, you're getting taped, you know you're getting ready to take the court? What's your mindset? Um, I honestly just am thinking positive and thinking about things that I need to do in the game, and I just try to stay loose. Uh, your family is such an athletic family as well. I believe uh, your younger brother is currently uh, at BYU. Your younger sister, I believe, won a state championship uh, in volleyball uh, at Utah. How, uh, how proud are you of uh, your uh, younger siblings, and uh, uh, do you think some of them will even eclipse you in terms of athletic prowess? I hope they do. You know, I'm so proud of them. They're awesome and good sports, and some of them are even better at athletics than I am, especially my younger sister. She's going to be so great, and so I'm excited to see her and her career. Oh, come on. If you're better at athletics than your younger sister, just say it. I know you don't have to be deferential. <laughs> well, definitely right now since she's younger, but I don't know. I've always, like, tried to help her and encourage her, so I hope that she takes that. I teach her and takes it further, so I hope that she's good. Uh, how did your family react to all of the attention that you got uh, from a few months ago? 
Um, I don't know. I think they were just excited for me and for our team. You know, it was great uh, recognition for our school that, you know, we can compete at a high level. Jennifer Hampson of the Los Angeles Sparks looking for win number one on the season here in New York against the New York Liberty. Jennifer, thank you so very much. And you can share with us right now uh, your favorite uh, guilty pleasure in terms of food. In terms of food? food yeah. My favorite is fruit, actually. Watermelon, especially. <laughs> my favorite. Your favorite watermelon. You're such an exemplary <laughs> person. You could have done Oreos, you could have done Twinkies, but you went watermelon. Yep. <laughs> Jennifer, thank you so very much for joining us, and best of luck this season, and best of luck in your professional career. Thank you. We thank both our guests, Jennifer Hampson and A.D. Carson, for joining us on our podcast today, that A.D. Carson interview, such an eye-opening interview, and hopefully the talk and discussion and discourse uh, doesn't end after things, quote-unquote, settle down uh, in South Carolina. It's definitely something that um, exists today and has existed for so many years, and the, and the discussion just needs to continue an honest and open discussion about race relations in America. And if you haven't read the poem, once again, go to cstripescu.org, cstripescu.org. Again, A.D. Carson, Jennifer Hampson, our guests on episode number 19, our next episode coming out in a couple of weeks episode number 20 we have a couple of interviews lined up hopefully they will be able to be a part of episode number 20 and stay tuned to a lot of sports talk.com we have coverage of mls soccer for you we've had it for uh the past couple of months again the National Football League season, it's not close, but it's getting closer. Training camp starts next month. We also will have on a lot of sportstalk.com a feature on one of the New York Giants running backs, Rashad Jennings. He took up archery uh, in the summer. One of the most unique characters in the National Football League, Rashad Jennings. We got a chance to catch up with him uh, during uh, Veterans Minicamp, and we'll have a feature on on Rashad Jennings running back for the New York Giants. So once again, stay tuned in the next week to a couple of weeks for episode number 20. Not sure if we'll have a birthday cake present uh, marking the anniversary, or not necessarily anniversary, but marking the uh, occasion of 20 podcasts. But uh, it will be a special podcast, and we will have it for you, and you will be listening, correct? I know you will. So uh, for everyone at a lot of sportstalk.com, my name is Adeshina Koiki. Thank you so very much for joining us today, and we will see you for episode number 20. Thank you. You take care. Bye-bye.